fundamentally, external training load measures what you did. You know, and, and so you train, did you implement your training plan as intended? And so it's really important that you have a training plan for a start. And so you can measure, did we implement it as we intended to implement it? Because that's where um, one's part in the training process can break down what we call a training error. Um, just because you didn't implement training as you intended um, or the external load as you intended doesn't mean it was good or bad. It just means it wasn't as intended. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas, and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. So this episode of the Pace Performance Podcast is an absolute goliath. It was recorded back in 2021, and it features Amber Rowell, Aaron Coots, and Matthew Lacombe. So it's all about GPS. It's all about external load monitoring, how to best use it for to understand athlete performance, but also athlete fatigue. So Amber, Aaron, and Matthew have an incredible amount of experience, both in academia and in the applied world. So we get a fantastic range of questions coming to these guys from how we present the data to use an external load monitoring to assess fatigue, as I've mentioned, and understanding the effect our training is having on our athletes. So it's an incredibly interesting conversation with these three. I could not have picked three better people to talk on this topic. So I'm sure you'll get loads out of it. If you're using GPS or any external load monitoring measure, this one is definitely for you. Enjoy. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics force plate system in action, head over to their website hawkingdynamics.com to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. This episode is also sponsored by Team Builder. Team Builder is a software for performance coaches around the world. The powerhouse platform increases efficiency, saves paper, and can handle any type of programming. It's the perfect fit for professional and academy teams, performance institutes, schools, and universities. Team Builder is full of tools that help coaches' needs. Multiple max tracking methods, 16 plus reports, evaluation testing, and goal setting, just to name a few. Coaches also have access to consultations with Team Builder's in-house sports scientist to help manage and analyze data. Head to teambuilder.com and sign up with promo code SPORTSMITH to start your 30-day free trial. And also sponsored by Smarterbase. So Smarterbase is the premier human performance optimization platform for elite sports teams and military organizations. So built on an infinitely configurable framework, Smarterbase is the most flexible software on the market. Create an adaptable solution to support your unique strategies, processes and culture for a fraction of the cost and time it takes to build your own. Centralize your performance and health data by easily integrating with other tech and data systems using Smarterbase's robust API and pre-built connectors. 
improve performance and reduce injury by enabling better communication and decision making with role-based access, custom workflows, mobile apps and personalised visual dashboards. And with the SmarterBase success guarantee, you can be confident in your human performance solution and the people who stand by it. Visit SmarterBase.com to learn how SmarterBase can help you improve athlete performance and service member combat readiness. So without further ado, over to the episode with Amber, Aaron and Matthew. So let's kick off. So one thing I found in a previous life when I was working for, for Catapult was the, the initial asking of the right questions and figuring out what people actually want external load monitoring to do was something that was often left out. So I'm going to come to you, Aaron. How do we go, th- how do, what process do we go through to figure out what is the right question and where that, what external load technology potentially yeah. can, can go to, to answer that question? What's the process well, people can go through? Well, first of all, I think you need to understand your sport and the determinants of performance in your sport. Um, and so, you know, if, is there, are there external load indicators that relate to the performance um, of your sport? That's for if you're understanding does, you know, external load relate to performance. But the other one, external load we mostly use it for is load, in load monitoring is process control. So understanding, um, you know, does what part of the external load or the construct of external load might relate to the processes training that might relate to the performance or fitness outcomes that we're trying to get. So it's a complex question, Rob. Um, you need to understand uh, the, uh, I suppose, the, the uh, underlying mechanisms that underlie performance and how training might relate to those and what aspects of training load relates to those. Um, fundamentally, external training load measures what you did. You know, and, and so you're trying, did you implement your training plan as intended? And so it's really important that you have a training plan for a start. And so you can measure, did we implement it as we intended to implement it? Because that's where um, one's part in the training process can break down what we call a training error. Um, just because you didn't implement training as you intended um, or the external load as you intended doesn't mean it was good or bad. It just means it wasn't as intended. So for me, um, if you know, what you need before you collect any understand the uh, frameworks that underpin performance and the process of training. Um, but also, really importantly, you probably should have said for a start, talk to a coach and athlete. Um, the coach, you know, uh, they may have their own ideas of what's important um, and you can, you can talk to them about that. And that might require some education with them or if not, you know, we're just working with them to deliver um, the information that they, they need. There's, you know, there's one thing about being the higher scientific integrity, but it's also about giving the information that you can make actionable decisions from and the coach needs. So um, hopefully that made a little bit of sense. Mm-hmm. Just, just on the back, on the back of that, it simplified it really nicely. It's, it's collecting what information on what you did. Do you think there's yeah. a, there's a, a theme that people are actually taking that too far and, and rely on that too much. And, and, yeah, well, and, and people think that it's actually more than what it is in that simplified state. Yeah, I, I agree. We can, like, we can measure a lot of stuff, a lot of things with external load. And external load is not one measure of it, right? It's, there's many constructs of external load. And you need to understand what thing that you, that's important to your performance that you're measuring. You don't need to measure everything which many people tend to do, um, because the devices provide a tsunami of information. And when we first got it, it was really attractive, right? We're trying to understand what relates to something else. And we thought we were really smart with these new metrics and measures. And um, But 
you can run a correlation analysis and everything can come up by random and you think you've found something new every day. But really what you need to have is what relates back to your training plan. So before we have an external load measure, you need to have a training plan and understand how the external load measure relates to that training plan. Without a training plan, you're not going to get as much usefulness out of your external load monitoring from a, a monitoring process point of view. I forgot to mention, <clears throat> excuse me, I forgot to mention at the start, if anyone's got any questions, we'll go for the first 45, 50 minutes, and then we'll dive into the questions that come in up in the, in the chat box and the Q&A. But just one more point on this, Aaron, and probably getting into the more the granular details. There's a million and one metrics that we can collect. How do we, again, just dialing things down again, how do we go through the process to understand which of the metrics uh, yeah. should be okay. collecting? Well, yeah. I'll be very boring here. You need yep. to have things valid for a start. They're measuring what we think they're measuring, that they're reliable. Um, that means that you know, they're, when you measure them the same conditions, they give you the same numbers. They're sensitive in that the things that you're measuring um, change in response to training. So you can have, you know, it, that, I think that's really important, valid, reliable, and sensitive. Um, and uh, really important that you understand actually first principles, what the numbers actually, where they're being derived from and what they mean. Uh, there's a lot of um, derived measures from algorithms that use um, ratio scores or um, comparisons of different variables, but you've got to understand what are they actually providing us and how do they relate to the either the stimulus that we're trying to, to provide or do they relate to the performance requirements. Um, and so deciding what metrics are actionable, um, I suppose, or what's important, um, first of all, they've got to be valid reliable and they need to relate to performance of the training process. I've said the same thing several times, but I think that is, um, and it's the fundamentals of, of athlete monitoring with external yeah. load. I'd love to get Matthew or Amber to, to dial in on, on, on this one and just how that's done in a, in a really practical sense and on the, on the deciding of the, the right metrics, because you guys are in it, in the thick of it every day. Have you got anything to add there, Matteo? First, uh, I, I, I wanted to say that I, I love what Aaron said that uh, monitoring is not about tech. Uh, it's about people, process, and technology. And uh, you, you, you need to have perfectly balanced uh, process uh, in between. So if you don't have the good people on board, uh, it won't work. Uh, if you don't have the good process and it's coming through the having a training plan to understand what you are doing, it's not going to work. So most of the people are just thinking about, okay, yes, let's dive into external load. I will buy some, some GPS and everything will be perfect. But to be honest right now, uh, I would prefer buy some crappy GPS and bring Amber or, or Ben Simpson on board rather than have to super expensive GPS, but not understanding the, the processes that are in the back of it and uh, do not have the, the, the good people in, in, in place. Um, then yes, I think when it's come to uh, selecting the variables, um, there, there is two things. We, we, we need to, uh, to think that in the end, we are talking with uh, coaches, strength and conditioning coaches or uh, training coaches. Uh, and so we, we, we need to select that variables that speak to them because in the end, uh, we will speak to, uh, to the coaching staff and we need to keep this number as low as we can uh, so this is two key, uh, two key things we need to keep in mind. Um, and the third one is that we need to select variables that, um, 
that correspond to some uh, mechanical output or high intensity output. So uh, in the end, it's just about uh, what key variables uh, will be interesting to uh, measure my uh, neuromuscular load. What are the key variables to uh, measure my high intensity output, my top speed one and my global volume. And uh, if you have this in mind and that for every single variable you are adding or removing, uh, you are thinking about, okay, what is the physio physiological process behind that? Uh, you will be in a better place to, uh, to pick the good ones. Is, is there often, are we gonna say something, Aaron? No, I was just gonna say, it seems like he's been trained by Martin, right? He's identifying, uh, you know, the training targets that Martin so often measures. So I don't know, completely agree. Yeah. Coming to you, Amber, anything to add? Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think like, as, as you know, when you export out a report from Catapult or any of the other providers, you get a whole sheet of different metrics. And I think it's better, as Matthew said, to keep it simple. And it's thinking about how you're portraying that information to different audiences. You've got coaches who tend to focus more on the volume, the intensity metrics, that's something that they understand. Whereas you might have a physio who, who perhaps you can explore a little bit further into some of the different accelerometer metrics or the acceleration, decelerations, that type of thing. So I think it's about understanding what information you're relaying, making it in the simplest way. As Aaron said, it's all about the, the way that you're portraying those messages to the coaches and to different audiences. So I think you can bombard it. You can bombard people with information, but the best thing is just to keep it simple. Is, is there sometimes a, a conflict between the things that Aaron said about the reliability and the validity of measures, but what coaches actually understand? And is there sometimes a little bit in between that you might have a little play around with? I see that's the opportunity, right? There's yeah. the opportunity space, right? So yeah. I use that to educate coaches around, you know, things about um, measurement precision. Like it might sound boring, but it's fundamental for coaches to understand that as well. It's a foundation of science and, and, and science and evidence-informed practice. So I think that, um, yeah, that like coaches, they the ones I work with tend to be pretty open to, you know, to learning. And they pick it up pretty quick. The, con the concepts aren't that complex, you know, measuring um, um, measurement precision. But I, I think that's a real opportunity to start a conversation. Um, and the, the more conversations we can have about this with coaches, the better. It makes us more more effective because they're the real decision makers. Mm -hmm. Just just going back to you, uh, Matteo, is for uh, PSG. Is there any key metric? I know we're, we're doing things down, and apologies for that. But I think that people may want this kind of information from you guys. What what you've gone through that process that we've just talked about for the last ten minutes. What is the end result for you right now that you're making decisions off? Um, I think people expect us to uh, to do super crazy stuff, uh, but to be honest. We are using super basic metrics, uh, mm -hmm. going from uh, total distance to uh, uh, to some basic uh, speed in range. Uh, so high speed, very high speed. Uh, we are using uh, <clears throat> our, let's say, ADI derived uh, mechanical work, which is basically uh, the sum of acceleration, deceleration uh, with an index based on the, the intensity of the acceleration. Uh, then we have uh, two range for acceleration when the when the strength and conditioning coaches want to uh, to dive uh, in acceleration deceleration CODs, but it's mainly uh, when we have specific strength oriented sessions, <clears throat> and then we are looking at everything related to uh, top speed uh, number of time in uh, 
above uh, 90%, uh, top speed reach, uh, percentage of top speed reach uh, during training. So yeah, fairly basic, uh, but uh, it makes the trick. Uh, we can have a, a look at, uh, okay, if it was a speed session, did we reach our objective? Uh, if it was a strength session, uh, do we have enough neuromuscular load? If it was more or less uh, high speed, high volume session, uh, high intensity, sorry, session, do we reach the, the, the good volume? And uh, and with that, we are we are able to uh, to come back to the training plan and say, okay, uh, we were in phase with uh, the plan or not. Uh, so we need to adjust on that. Was was there a reason? Oh, go on, Aaron. I, I was just saying, Rob. Like, it's really nice to have these like goals that PSG use or the mark, mark metrics that PSG use, but we really need to understand that different sports, different level of sports. Yeah have different metrics, we really need to be cautious of, you know, saying you know, these are perfectly good metrics for PSG to use, but they may not be appropriate for your sport or your level. The first thing you need to do yeah. is watch the game, watch the sport, yeah. watch how they move, um, and then relate it back to there. And, and, and then you yeah. can fit the goals and sessions and, and, and et cetera. Yeah. But I think it's important to, for, the, for the listeners to understand that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. Uh, uh, very well said. Um, uh, for, I, I don't know if many people know, but uh, at PSG, we have a, uh, obviously a football team, <clears throat> but as well, we have a handball team. Uh, and one of the, one of the things we, we've done kind of two or three years ago, uh, we implement our uh, indoor tracking system. And so we were aiming at more or less duplicating uh, our report for, for, for the handball team. Uh, but then we have to re-engineer uh, all, all the reports and rethink carefully about what, what were the key metrics. Uh, and we end up with something like player load um, being one of the key metrics in handball because you have less uh, volume of, uh, of running, but more contact and small movement. And so we, we have to rethink about that. And so I, I agree with, uh, with Aaron that different sports, different demands, different metrics. Yeah, I completely agree. I was just going to say I completely agree with that. And having recently just transitioned from football, soccer background to then coming to AFL, looking at the different demands on those two sports and just the way that, you know, even trainings conducted, the differences in volumes, the differences in intensities, I completely agree with you, Aaron. I think for different sports, you know, you, you have those base foundational metrics that are identical, but there's kind of little tweaks that you have and different Kind of meaningfulness of those metrics within the different sports so for sure completely agree in in that transition amber what was your process i mean there was obviously things going on before you got there but from your understanding and any tweaks that you thought you may want to make what was that process like for you what what exactly did you go through for me it was just i guess getting in that environment of afl and watching and observing and just seeing the differences that go on and uh, to be honest with you like i was blown away the first training session that i watched because their output and their amount of speed was what i'd been seeing only in a couple of the players in a match in soccer in the states so for me to then see that in a training session i was almost freaking out because i was like i've never seen this high amount of speed like across this group of athletes so for me it was a whole kind of relearning process and understanding then not only the demands of the sport but also the individual athletes within that team and you got you know what values I would have thought were high for a certain 
um, squad were then a normal for a player within a different team. So I think not only do you need to understand the context of the team and the sport, but also individuals within that and what they can tolerate, what they can do, what they can produce. So for me, it was just like an eye-opening experience and it was just like that observation and just understanding and being in that environment was the biggest kind of, I guess, transition for me. Um, but it, yeah, as I said, it just blew my mind away. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Aaron? You know, it just comes around, a lot of this comes around to the space they move in, how much space is available. And like, it's like modifying small-sided games in any code. When you get more space, you get more speed, you get more high, higher distances, more intensity. But then you close in space, you get more collisions uh, if, you're, if that's allowed in the sport. And, and that they're different external load metrics that you use depending on uh, whether you've got speed and space. So that sort of fundamentally comes down to the, the space available and actually the technical skills of the sport and how they move together. So that's why it's really important. First of all, before you look at a device, look at the game. Mm-hmm. Cool. So just moving on to our next point and, and coming back to you, Amber, on, on the planning and periodization, it was one of the questions that came in. There's multiple questions that came in. I've kind of lumped them together into one theme of, of planning and periodization. And one of the couple of questions were how you'd plan a one game week versus a two game week. I mean, do you, do you have two game weeks in AFL or is it pretty much? Uh, so that's really interesting. Like, I guess... I've always worked, you know, with the high performance director who have had that overall plan. So I guess my role has always been more around the data analysis of that plan. As Kootsie has said, you have that overall all structure. Um, it was actually really interesting this last year. So generally, no, you wouldn't have two games a week. You know, if I in fact think no, you wouldn't. You'd have one game a week. But we obviously went into a very different environment with COVID. And so the AFL got um, transitioned up interstate, so to a different location and then there was more frequent games played so we're playing multiple games across the week so it was interesting transition because having come from a soccer background where you're obviously regularly playing two games a week to then an AFL where it should have been one game a week but then it became multiple games a week Um, I guess it's just your the differences in that is you're just focusing on that recovery element and you're focusing on preparing them for that next stimulus so rather than a nice lovely six-day break between games where you can get your recovery you can get a main training session you can get your skills session in you can get a preparation for the next game that's all condensed so I guess you're loading midweek takes place of your main training session and then so you're just focusing in that block in between of recovery a light touch up and then you go again into games but it was really interesting to have that kind of period this year just gone last year gone with COVID in that that was something different to AFL and also then their games changed as well the duration of the game changed they had more um, kind of rest periods in in the game in between goals so you have those elements which are obviously assisting your player to recover but I think definitely that focus between having a nice spread of being able to have an ideal week and you know your training loads across that week so then you're just purely focusing on that next match and that recovery time. Interesting. Into uh, Anything to add Mattia from a, from a football point of view with how you how you juggle the the one game per week versus two games per week I'm guessing two games per week is pretty normal for you guys. Yeah, we, we, we don't have uh, many one-game uh, no. per week situation. Uh, we are, uh, most of our, um, let's say, weekly schedule is between two and three games per week sometimes, uh, especially uh, uh, with, with the COVID right now when we have to run after the games. Uh, but I think Martin dive a lot. Uh, he, he, in that area of are we are uh, training, uh, periodizing, periodizing the, the training. 
So pff, it's mainly recovering, uh, top-ups uh, for, for the players that are missing some game times, and then training for the kind of main train of, uh, training of, of, of the week. It can be strength or high intensity, uh, depending on uh, what, you, what you need. And then picking for games, so it's super, super simple uh, stuff. But uh, it's mainly managing this kind of. We have two days of recovery, three, uh, three days to prepare for the for the next game, or, or four days, and just um, managing this. That uh, uh, that is a day-to-day -day, uh, business so, so, of, of the practitioner. Um, so yeah, yeah, that's it. The the top ups side of things. I'll come back to you, Amber, for this. If that's all right. Yeah. It, for, for those that, that don't play or get limited minutes, what kind of methods are you using to top up? And that's something that comes up all the time and has come up in, in these questions from attendees as well. What, what are you looking for in terms of aims for those guys? How are you going about that? Is it small-sided games? Is it purely running-based uh, activities? How do you guys manage that? Yeah, so I think, again, talking from my prior like soccer experience, um, where I guess you do have those players who are on a bench that might not come you know, in for a game and depending on whether you've got a second tier, whether you've got a youth program or a, a second tier where they can play some match time, some of them don't. Um, the things that we would do is if they hadn't made the squad, it was giving them additional training stimulus before the match. Or as Matthew said, it's those runs after a game where you are just trying to increase their load. It's really, really hard with particular athletes to try and actually one, get them to do it and to have that kind of, I guess, mental stimulus to, to want to push and want to have that intensity. But I always thought it was something really important and I'd always try and like get those players up to somewhere comparable because again, you never know the next week they might be required. You might get an injury in your team. So it's like, it's crucial to, to keep those topped up. But I guess it was um, giving them some additional stimulus on like a match day minus one session, whether they do an additional set of games as well at the end when your main squad who are going to play on that weekend come out. So that was one way that uh, I've done it previously and then some top-up runs at the end. But I guess with AFL, normally there is that luxury of having the VFL program. So your players who aren't getting selected are going to play uh, like the next day. But again, from this last year just gone, we were organising kind of intra-club games for those carryover players. So again, it was trying to, keep those players topped up, keep them going with some sort of match stimulus stimulus that we could. But you kind of do rely on those top-up runs and those top-up games just to, to keep them up to that level. Would there be some percentages of, of certain metrics that you would look for as a as a cap? Or would it be like standard runs to, to get to a certain point? How would that look? Um, so just from my experience, and again, Matthew might do something different with with PSG, but from my experience, it was it was a bit of both. So I would look at um, and work with the team, the SNC coach and and the high performance director, and look at how their weekly load was tracking going into that game, and then sort of what metrics they were were low on, whether it was just a volume thing, whether they we did need to get some speed runs, and it would be purely you do the volume based stuff, and then it might be two or three efforts at the end to get you that speed top up. So for me, it was always looking at that combination and what kind of do we need to get out of those runs? Is it just purely get their volume up? Have they ticked off enough speed during the week? Or was it then they had to do some additional speed runs at the end? So um, Matthew might use a, a slightly different approach, but that's just the way that I, I'd operated and I'd done previous. Anything to add? Uh, no, I think we have more or less the same same process. Huh? Um, so basically for us, it was depending on the coaching philosophy uh, for our day plus one, but uh, day plus one is 
mainly small side games. Then depending on the number of, of players uh, you have and uh, what you can do, uh, you have more or less big small side games. Uh, so based on the small side game we've done, if it was, uh, we have few players, we were small, small side games, we try to top up the day plus one with some high speed drills. Uh, if it was big small side game and we have enough in the bank in terms of high intensity and the high speed, we try to top up with some uh, more strength oriented uh, skills. Uh, <clears throat> but then uh, planning the day plus one depend on what you have on day plus two, day plus three uh, and what you have before. So if you have uh, a player that, uh, that played uh, something like six games in a row, uh, the day plus one won't be the same as a, as a kind of a classic subs. Uh, so there is mainly uh, variables and uh, contextual variables that you need to take into account to plan the day plus one. So it's kind of versatile and we need to be uh, quite agile. And uh, that's why it's good to have a good over overview of uh, what the kind of the rooster for the day plus one uh, did uh, in the uh, in the previous days or weeks uh, and to have in mind uh, what is coming forward. So do we have big games and the, the guys uh, that are training on the day plus one will have to play soon or not. Uh, so based on that, uh, it's uh, come to the fitness coach to, 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 to plan the good one. But, uh, Anything to add, Aaron? These guys have got it covered, right, Rob? Oh, I'm pretty redundant here. No, I think they've got it. You, you really need to have a, a training plan. And if you've got a training plan, like it's, it's, it's more complex than giving a few measures, but you know what you've done, know what you plan to do. Um, if individual data, and we historically have used a few blunt measures of total distance, maybe some speed exposure, high speed running and some intensity, but there's no magic formula here, right? You're just using your best guess, um, really. Mm -hmm. But again, it's all come to the process. Uh, you need to know that the day plus one is uh, the station that is coming the more <laughs> in, in the year. So you need to have a, a good process uh, in place uh, to, 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 to take the good action and plan the, the, the good training because it's one of the, I won't say most important, but it's kind of one of the critical one uh, in your year. Uh, and so it's offer a lot of uh, window of opportunity for good trainings and uh, and so on. So yeah, you need to have a good process in mind. Mm -hmm. Amber, just going back to you. Oh, go on, Aaron. Go on. So just on that, I think with some early work we did and, and others have others have done too. That that window after after a game, like you've got to be really careful uh, not to expose athletes to too much, particularly that twenty four hour window. It, it can you know interfere with recovery processes and that affects. Um, you know, what happens next, you know, it amplifies the uh, damage and, and you're a little bit really careful. Uh, I think that's where athletes can be if they're, such a, if they're sensitive to load, if there's such a thing as I hate to say things like that, but you, that's where they can be sensitive and vulnerable at least. Cool. Just yeah, I agree. And Come sorry, I was just going to say yeah. like, I have always tried to top them up like on the night of the game or prior to the game, I think. It's, it's a bit too much to try and expect then the player to come in when the rest of the group's recovering to then do extra work. I've tried to always, yeah, be in, in environments where it's still clear of that. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Amber, Aaron and Matteo. So over in part two, we have a little chat around understanding the effect our training is having on our athletes, as well as a couple of random questions that I throw at these guys right at the end. So a fantastic part two coming up. 
This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Omega Wave. Omega Wave is the only non-invasive at rest technology on the market that analyzes readiness to train via both brain and cardiac analysis. Using DC potential and HRV to understand your brain's energy level and autonomic nervous system balance allows you to use objective data on recovery and readiness that in turn helps you to truly individualize your training and thus optimize performance. Omega Wave also measures ECG from the V6 position. This data can be used by the medical profession to check cardiac health on a frequent basis. The measurement takes only four minutes to perform and results are visualized in an intuitive way thanks to our windows of trainability concept. Omega Wave is used by hundreds of elite sports, military and law enforcement organizations. Omega Wave are also the official partner of the UFC Performance Institute. Learn more about Omega Wave by visiting their website omegawave.com and their social media channels. And this episode is also sponsored by Stanta College. Stanta College, led by Dr. Liam Hennessy, provides international recognized qualifications in strength and conditioning and performance science from certificate to master's level. Courses are designed by industry leaders such as Des Ryan and Professor Ian Jeffries, ensuring students and graduates are at the cutting edge of technology and learning the most current methodologies from world-renowned practitioners. Stanta College's unique blended learning approach allows you to take the next step in your career in your own time and at your own pace. Lectures are delivered in an online classroom, while residential workshops provide the perfect opportunity for practical application of your studies with guidance from experts within the field of sports science and performance coaching. With campus locations across Ireland, the UK, USA, India and South Africa, applications are now open for courses including the BSc in Strength and Conditioning, MSc in Performance Coaching and MSc in Applied Sport and Exercise Physiology. Visit tantacollege.com for more information on how to apply. And now back to the episode with Amber, Aaron and Matteo. One topic that came up in a, in a particular episode of the podcast, and it was a guy at Aston Villa, and it was around multi-mechanical modelling. And I had a little bit of a conversation with, with Martin, actually, on this post, that episode. And I think them two, them two caught up and had a little chat. Is that something that you've utilised? I mean, Mar- I think Martin's thoughts around it, that it was a little bit, it seemed a little bit too simple. Um, but is there any, have you have any thoughts on it? Have you utilised it? Yeah, what, what's your thoughts around multi-mechanical modelling? Yeah, maybe Matthew's a better one. He's sort of okay. doing some reactions down there. He might, <laughs> I might defer to him. Um, but from, from my understanding, I haven't, I haven't really yeah. touched on that. I think um, the bit, my biggest understanding is giving the athlete exposure to their requirements of match intensity. So, again, you profile your athletes, you begin to understand who your higher speed athletes are, and it's ensuring that they're getting that stimulus going into a game that they're prepped for that. But in terms of, I'll be completely honest, in terms of putting that in in an equation or, or something like that, I haven't explored that, no. So maybe Matthew might <laughs> shed a bit more light. I think it be mine. So yeah, I think cool. he's, Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, I know I won't make myself much friend with this <laughs> opinion, <laughs> but now to, to, to be honest, I, I just personally not a big fan of this model. Um, so it's more, it, it, it's more or less as kind of the hype of mechanical uh, 
metabolic power, sorry, uh, and, and, and this kind of stuff. I think people are trying to look for, for, for stuff to reduce the complexity of training uh, around two numbers. One is volume, one is intensity, and then I can put this into my kind of nice graph and it's super simple. Uh, but one thing we need to um, think about as well. Um, so we went in the kind of horizontal specificity and uh, we have uh, on one side neuromuscular, uh, high speed running and high intensity running and all this kind of stuff. So it's not about uh, overall volume of overall intensity, but what I want to know is what is my volume of high speed? What is my volume of uh, neuromuscular constraint? What is my volume of high speed running? This is one thing. Uh, and that, and the, and, and, and the second, second part is that um, at the end, uh, we, we, we need to remind ourselves that uh, we need to speak with uh, the coaching staff uh, so that the coaching staff will act on that. And uh, I, I, I don't see myself just going in the, in the changing room and uh, telling my coach that, hey coach, you need to improve the volume by 0 0.2 on a one to five scale uh, for tomorrow but the intensity need to be reduced by 0 0.3, it will say, oh, what the fuck? <laughs> what, what do we, come on, what do I need to do? Do you, do you want me to, to do more, I don't know, uh, small side games to have more neuromuscular constraints uh, or, or things like that? And if I, if I say, I don't know, I just want you to reduce the volume by 0 0.2 on my one to five scale, uh, it's, it's not gonna happen. To be honest, so I, I think we need to to keep in mind that we are here to help the coach plan the training, and the fitness coach plan the training, uh, and so for that we need to give them some insights uh, and help them to to understand that okay, do I need to add more you know, neuromuscular constraint? Am I missing some uh, very high speed running or, or thing like that? So we need to speak their language, and so it's not by oh, trying to overcome complexify the data process to super simplify the training periodization that, uh, that we managed to, to do that. Mm -hmm. So that's why we, we, we stick to things that are on the field since kind of 10 years and we are speaking about uh, oh, fast time running, uh, what is the number of acceleration I've done? It's super simple, uh, but we, we, we clearly see where we are, we have been high in numbers and low in numbers, so. And also, rather than talking about the goal, the outcome measure, give them, you know, what type of training drills that they use could be selected to achieve that goal, because that's what you know, coach speak is. So that's why you've really got to know training and, and, and how they plan training and, and the drills that they design. So I think that's really important, rather than giving the number of our outcome variables, talking the language and, and how, prescribe, how they prescribe it. Yeah, I'd completely agree. And I think, um, as, as Scootsy said earlier, it's all about, you know, giving that feedback of, of the plan session versus actual. And it's like, did it achieve those goals? And, and as you just said, highlighting what drills are going to achieve that overall volume intensity and having a good database set up to, to be able to identify that for them and give them that feedback. And I think sometimes there's maybe a bit of like a draw to have this magic number this magic training load number where I think it's more important to understand well did the session achieve what it was designed to do and within that have the individual athletes achieved what they need to be prepared for the next training session or the next game I think those two are, are your key metrics and I, I think sometimes 
we get stuck in this world of trying to have this magic, you know, outcome, this magic number. But realistically, it's like you just got to keep those things simple. Cool. I'm going to come to you, Aaron, because we've got half an hour left and up pops the acute chronic ratio. Of course, magic numbers as well. <laughs> what's, your, what's your thoughts? And again, it was one that came up a couple of times, whether it based on what we've seen in research over the last couple of years, does it still have a place? And if so, where? And if not, why? Well, without you know, with being serious, I think change in training load has a place, right? Control of training load and changing training load, understand that training load changes has a place. But the acute chronic workload, as it's been presented, I know it's pretty clear the show that's been debunked. Um, if you if you can read the recent paper in Sports Medicine that Franco and Palazzari laid that we put together, um, it clearly shows that a ratio score by itself, just the mathematical use of a ratio score, um, limits its applicability, and therefore it, it shouldn't be used um, as if you're trying to relate it to injuries. But that aside, so the ratio score and the floor of the mathematics aside, controlling dose is important. But if we think that we can predict the performance outcome or we think with, with high precision or an injury, um, this, I, I'm yet to see it um, and I don't think I'll ever see it. Um, and if I did see it and could happen, um, it would be, I'd be a very rich man. So, um, so I, I don't think so. I, I don't think, I think the load control is a really important message that underlies behind that um, but we need to not look for simple metrics it's very attractive and I admit when I first saw it, oh, this looks nice right to make my job easy um, but our jobs aren't easy they're complex training is complex um, and that's why we have um, undergraduate postgraduate degrees and 10 years of experience at least so you can do this job properly um, you need to understand the complexity of it and let's not go looking for over simple applied solutions so the answer um, in, in short is that the critical ratio itself is flawed if predicting injury, but understanding load control is really important and, and being able to do that, which is part of any good training system, um, is essential. Mathieu? You know, <laughs> uh, to be honest, I, I, I think we, 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 with the ratio, we, we, we fooled ourselves with that. To be honest, we uh, we are a lot that dive into the into the, the the concept of okay, we have this ratio. I need to track this ratio. Uh, yet from 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 day one, uh, I remember all my talk with uh, with Martin and, and and Ben about that. We we never used as the kind of prediction number. Uh, it was more a way for us to use it as a nice way to vi to visualize the training dynamics. So it's been done for ages with didn't invent nothing. Uh, I think uh, if we are back to the 60, uh, it was more or less the same thing. Practitioner were looking at what did I do over the last weeks? Two, three, four, five, depending on your sports and, uh, and your context. What did I do during the last days? It can be three to five for us because we have super short uh, training cycles. It can be seven or eight for, for, for sports like rugby, whatever. Uh, but the idea is to have uh, a nice way to look at the trends uh, of both and try to not create big imbalances. Um, uh, but yeah, so personally, I would continue to track these variables and try to display in the most competing way for my practitioner because it's a nice way to, to look at the, the dynamics. Uh, but again, if you want to, let's say, prevent injury or better 
to uh, to predict injuries. Uh, just we we are on on the other side. It comes to the art experience of the of the fitness coach and what you are doing on training. What is the overall context? And it's way way more complex than uh, just playing with two numbers. And uh, uh, to be honest, would be uh, would be too nice uh, to say, hey, we are the as a community, we managed to predict rare events, uh, rare events that are injuries. <laughs> When people are trying to predict earthquakes, uh, earthquakes on, on on the planet, we weigh more data than we have, so we, we we just need to be careful with that. Anything to add, Amber? Are you guys still using it at all? No, like I I completely agree with with the way of visualizing each individual athlete's distribution of data. As Aaron and Matthew said, I've I've personally utilized that more effectively, and and I think that that's really crucial. And again, looking at also the exposure, particularly, you know, the speed exposure and how many days since they've had that kind of last exposure to speed, I think is really crucial, particularly in a sport like AFL. You know, the, the, the role that having that speed exposure plays, you know, with your hamstring groups as, as an example. So I think looking at that distribution, as I said, looking at, at the load distribution, I wouldn't, I don't think you can classify that in a, in a ratio or in a number or in a certain band and each individual is going to be different. You know, each athlete is going to be able to tolerate load differently and each athlete is going to need a slightly, you know, variable um, loading and, and need exposures to different loads. So I think to have a blanket ratio or a blanket number, I just, I don't think it, it's as simple. It would be as, as both of them have said, it would be lovely, but it's not as simple as a one, one model fits all either. Mm-hmm. Just on that, on that speed exposure, Amber, is there, any, is there any particular number of like times per week that you would ensure that your guys hit above a certain percentage of their uh, max speed? And does that, does yeah, that differ I, between individuals? Yeah, I think like, um, again, in our, in the pre-season, we have sort of two main training sessions where we're wanting to promote that speed exposure. In season, you're probably looking at in AFL one main training session um, where you would get that, but I would always try and ensure that your players are getting that. And previously in, in soccer as well, I've tried to promote that at least that they're getting that 90% plus and the same in AFL across your training week before going into a game. Because again, I think there's been some good research that's come out and looked at, at the impact of having that speed exposure and, you know, potentially helping um, the player going into the game. So I think that that's really beneficial um, to make sure that they are hitting that at least once during the week before they go into a game. Cool. Matteo, I'm going to come to you, but I'm going to come to you back to you, Amber, because you've got tons of experience in this as well. But monitoring neuromuscular fatigue or function with regards to assessments of that, Matteo, and it was, again, taken from some of the questions that came in. Excuse me. Taken from some of the questions that came in. So I'd love to get your opinion on this because of the research and obviously the day-to-day working that that, that you do in this area. Uh, it's it's great to have this topping coming uh, in a, let's say training external training load uh, monitoring topic uh, because you, you you know my opinion about that is uh, monitoring external training load per se uh, is not enough uh, you 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 need to understand from from a kind of just planning point of view uh, when I'm applying an external load what are the responses to that load. And it's kind of uh, the trade-off in, in, between one and, and, and the other that will allow us to uh, just improve the way we, we train. So 
coming back to uh, to this, uh, we we test many many things over the last uh, few years. Uh, one of the first things we tried to uh, to dive in uh, was uh, the box to box standardized run. Um, it was su super simp simple. Huh? Players are just running uh, uh, 80 meters uh, at the speed of 21, 22 kilometers per hour. Again, depending on your sport, you can adapt this. But the, the, the thing is, you, you need to have, a, let's say, uh, a, a proper speed uh, to have the more, uh, the more reliable and sensitive data. Uh, we, we, we've done, um, we've done a, a study about that with, uh, with Cédric Leduc, who was in Leeds with uh, rugby union players. We, uh, we test multiple uh, speeds. Uh, and uh, if the speed is not high enough, uh, the reliability is not good enough. So you, you need to have a proper speed. Uh, so this is good. Uh, we found a uh, large relationship with left stiffness. So basically what we are doing is uh, we look at um, sort of ratio, coming back to ratio, but of uh, velocity, speed or velocity load, whatever your, your, your metrics, uh, on top of uh, vertical acceleration uh, measured by the, by the accelerometer. Uh, and during this metric uh, and tracking this, we find a large relationship between this and leg stiffness, a good sensitivity uh, and a, let's say moderate reliability. So it's okay to use, but you need to, uh, to use it on a regular basis and look at trends uh, to understand uh, if your players uh, are coping with the load and are, uh, let's say fresh on the neuromuscular function perspective. The other thing we tried to uh, we tried to to dive in and thanks Amber it was an amazing paper uh, it was a, a standardized small side games which is let's say which is the graal because it's fully invisible you know box box to box you you need to ask your player to run for three minutes uh, per week uh, if you have to, to if you want to put this in place standardized small side games it's fully invisible so it's it's clearly the the, the graal uh, but the thing is it's bit more noisy. Uh, and again, the, the, it depends on a lot of contextual variables. Uh, coming back to Amber papers, it, they managed to have the, exactly the same small side games at the same uh, day of the week, was day minus one, if I remember well. Uh, and they tracked the numbers like that. Uh, and mainly, uh, well, I think Amber, we will we, we live in, in, in that topic here in depth, but uh, they were looking again at uh, uh, mechanical load or accelerometer based uh, variables. Uh, we, we, we try to develop uh, more or less a similar model, but the, the thing is we have many changing small side games. So what we try to do is to develop a model using what we call a readiness measure. Um, the idea was, let's say, quite simple. We were looking for, at each specific small side games and we were, we were trying to compare uh, the standard deviation of a player compared with the median of the team saying that, okay, I don't know, if we play uh, all the four, we are doing the small side games, maybe Aaron will run the most, uh, Amber, Trayton, I'll be the last, but Rob, you'll be, <laughs> you'll, be, you, you, you'll be somewhere in, in between. And if I can track this number over time and, uh, and you start to, <laughs> to come to me more often, and then at one time you, you are running less than me, maybe, uh, it's meaning that um, uh, that you are on, kind of tired on the neuromuscular perspective, or not tired but not fresh enough. 
We tried to do that, it was looking super nice in theory, but it's revealed to be super, super noisy on a day-to-day -day basis. So we were running the numbers, we were doing the reports, we were looking at, at it every day and uh, not much was uh, weathering off. So we, uh, we, dropped, we dropped this one, uh, but I, I, to be honest, I'd be happy to, uh, to put my nose back into it uh, with maybe more clever people than I am uh, to look at different way to analyze this. The last thing we 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 try to uh, to dive in. So it's uh, what GBMOI is doing right now with the in situ force velocity profiling. Uh, we recently demonstrated that GPS looks accurate enough to compute to, to, to compute the uh, the profile uh, from the GPS. So you don't need now a, a, a radar gun and, so, and and stuff like that. Uh, and so based on that, using all the training data, we should be able to track the sprint profile. Uh, and now we need to understand that to what extent fatigue or neuromuscular function alteration could lead to change in this profile. So maybe uh, we can have something on the acceleration area or maybe more some change in the, on the high speed area. But one more time, I think there is no one goal number uh, or one goal test, uh, but the more we can collect data, the more info we can have, uh, then if we can manage to develop two, three or four good neuromuscular function assessments, uh, saying that it's the, the, the more invisible, the better, uh, because the less burden and coming back, I, I, I guess Aaron will, uh, will dive into that on the kind of cost benefits of, of doing this kind of stuff. Um, but if we can manage to, to, to develop two or three uh, tests like that, we should be able to look at trend. And again, it's gonna be the trend that uh, will help us to, uh, to act, uh, to work on the numbers on, the, on a daily basis. I'll come to you in a second, Amber, but Aaron? I was gonna say it's super attractive and I've been doing this for over 25 years, trying to find these sub-maximal tests, non-invasive, invisible tests. <laughs> Uh, where you get some external workload that's fixed, you look at a physiological response and a fatigue response at the same time. Like it makes sense, it's logical, but geez, it's hard to do in practice. Um, you know, I've been lucky enough to work in some great places with really good control, and even there, um, the good control doesn't last for long. My football, professional sport environments are chaos, and they're really attractive ideas, but I've, I've never been able to deliver it other than for research purposes consistently in the field. Um, so it doesn't mean we shouldn't stop trying, but I think everybody who's listening should be aware that you do a lot of work here for little return and you've got to be um, really aware of that before you go in. The cost benefit and the feasibility of doing these things, super attractive. Like all, of, all three of us are sold on it, but being able to get it to work is so, so difficult. So just be aware of that. Over to you, Amber. Yeah, I completely agree. And I guess was fortunate enough to, to, as Matthew said, be able to publish a paper and look at it across the season and got very fortunate with being able to have a standardised drill performed every week with the same amount of players. But as Aaron just said, then it is very 
hard to do. I think it's definitely something that and I myself would love to explore further as well um, in, in AFL and it's that whole understanding of like we know that fatigue impacts their movement pattern. So it's like how, how do you assess that? How do you determine that? How can you utilise um, something that you're already collecting to kind of identify that? But as Aaron said, it's extremely hard. <laughs> it's extremely hard and it takes, yeah, consistency. It takes work it takes something that's very precise which doesn't always happen in a sporting world and no matter how much you try and control for that things just don't happen so I think it's definitely an area that I want to keep looking more into and and you know talking to other experts and seeing what they're doing talking to Matthew seeing what he's doing with his force velocity profiling and seeing if there is some way of exploring that further for sure but I think it's a work in progress absolutely Mm -hmm. And I think we should also understand, is, is fatigue bad? And I think sometimes we measure fatigue, but we've got to understand, is fatigue bad? Or is that actually what we want? And yeah. how much is enough? And we, we still don't know this necessarily. We've got some rules of thumb, of course. You know, we can see outliers. But we also you know, we need to keep our eye on the big picture here. For sure. And I think, as you said, Aaron, like fatigue is definitely part of the process. So I guess it's like, when when's it occurring how much is it occurring and what implications is it having is it you know happening early in the week when they've had that heavy game load they've had that heavy training load and we want them to then adapt to that to then perform better in the consequent can consecutive consequential game i'm getting tongue-tied here (laughs) the next game is what i'll say Oh gosh, I've got myself tongue-tied. Um, or is it happening leading into that game, which is actually going to impact them in that game? So I guess it's also about understanding when it's hitting them across that week and when they've recovered, which was something that, yeah, I was super keen to explore that kind of time course as well. Matthew, anything to no, add? No, no, I, I, I like the way that um, it's a two-axis equation. On one side, it's all close of the game. Uh, it's the fighting occurring and the uh, all intense, or if I can say it like that, but the, the fighting is. And then the, the decision making uh, should be different. But uh, I think we, uh, as Aaron said, we, we try to see the fighting as a no go zone, never be fatigued. <laughs> and uh, I think again, we, 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 we miss full uh, a bit uh, uh, ourselves. Uh, and I, I think that we, we, we need to try to. Let's say change a bit the paradigm and say maybe early in the week fatigue is good uh, and I can try to uh, to increase that fatigue if I know that on game day the player will be fully recovered. Uh, but yeah, fatigue is part of the process. Without fatigue, you don't have any adaptation. So trying to avoid by any means a fatigue uh, is not the best uh, things to do. Mm-hmm. Just just one last thing on this on this area, Mathieu, and it was it was planning based on. Post match post match fatigue monitoring, is that something that you can give us a bit of a, an insight into? Um, huge topic, uh, but I think depend of the period of the season, depend of uh, who is in that state and uh, when you are playing. But overall, uh, so coming back to my previous point, uh, we all uh, always complain about. Uh, we, we don't have any window of opportunities to train. That's what we are saying. Uh, so I would see monitoring in the other way, saying, okay, maybe monitoring can help us to detect players that have fully recovered from games earlier than previous, uh, than, uh, than, than in the past. 
or earlier than, than planned. Uh, and so we have a new window to train. So maybe, I don't know, the guy playing the, he, he played the, the full game. We are uh, going through the monitoring. The, the, the player is fully recovered and it was not planned. So maybe we can put some more load on, on, on him. So to expect uh, in the long run uh, to have adaptation. And I think it's the way to go to be sure that uh, over 11 months season, we managed to have at the kind of sometimes small windows of opportunities that are opening so we can retrain the guys. And uh, in the end, we, we can manage to have a distance workload on a week to week basis, or at least a month to month basis. Uh, but for too many times, we, we've seen the monitoring as, okay, we will remove players from the training plan rather than, hey, maybe uh, this and this, we could put you on the, on, uh, on more load. So yes, and then again, coming back to what <laughs> I would, um, yes, the cost benefit of monitoring must be super careful wasted. Um, so there is, lot of factors when we are planning for that, such as, I don't know, logistical burden, coach buy-in, player compliance. Uh, so, and there is, on the other side, uh, sort of lack of evidence showing that incomplete recovery at, I don't know, day plus two, uh, will negatively influence uh, the ensuring performance. So I will be super careful when removing uh, players, from the training plan based on that solely. Uh, because on one side, they are missing a technical session, they are missing a tactical session. And I don't know, maybe the two or three percent of recovery I'm managing for, for my player uh, at the end uh, as a higher cost than the kind of uh, the full session of tactical, uh, tactical knowledge he missed. So that's why we, to be honest, I, I'm trying to dive as much as I can into this kind of invisible monitoring, look at trends. Uh, so I try to remove as much burden as I can uh, from the day-to-day -day operations. Uh, but yeah, we, we, we need to understand from research, likely, uh, what are the, the, the direct relationship between a, a 5% decrease in the, I don't know, neuromuscular freshness and uh, a performance coming two or three days later, especially in football, when you know that tactical, technical skills are way more important than the, the overall physical uh, stuff. So to me, super complex. Um, again, I know that, uh, and I've gone in that area for, for many years, buildings kind of, EV setup to monitor the, 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 the players. Uh, I'm just thinking, okay, a lot of work, uh, but to be honest, I, I didn't know if uh, the few percent I was managing uh, at the beginning of the, of the week had an impact in the end. So we need to, uh, to clearly remind that our goal is to, to have an impact on the game day performance. Uh, and so we, we need to manage that. But, I understand. I didn't answer the question at all. <laughs> <laughs>
I put this here and uh, <laughs> good luck. That's fine. Anything to add, guys? Because if not, we'll we'll dive into some questions. But Amber, yeah. Just yeah, just just want to add. Like I think it's also important also to understand like the athlete's response as well. Because I think sometimes we try so much to to kind of control that, but it's also that's where you can get other external metrics like their their wellness or just having those conversations with them as as how they're feeling after a game, how they've recovered. I think you can't um like undervalue that impact as well and that that conversation too because I think as much as we can try and I guess look for numbers and look for data and look for information like they are people and hopefully you can build that rapport to have that relationship with your athlete that they're going to give you feedback they're going to let you know how they're feeling they're going to let you know what areas are sore and things like that so I think we can't also you know um ignore that side of it too we can add anything there Aaron no, I've got to cover it. Only thing, I'll go back to basics. So whatever you measure, make sure it's valid, it's reliable, and it's sensitive, and it fits within a framework. Um, there are no single answers to this. Um, it is very complex. But even we talk about fatigue, we could get into what is fatigue. And you know, that's another whole podcast for us, right? So we won't get to that. <laughs> cool. We'll dive into some of the questions just for the next five minutes. Um, one that came in, and I'll leave this up to the floor, so whoever unmutes the mic first, hopefully someone does. But um, regarding accelerations and deceleration monitoring, would you guys look at acceleration counts or distance covered during those accels and decels? Anyone? Shall I come to and drop it on someone? There's, there's no real answer. There's no one answer. It cool. depends on what the target is, right? So it depends. And so I don't think we can say there is one to choose. It depends upon context. And I know it's a cop out of an answer, but it's a truth. Yep. You really need to know what concept, what the context, and what you're targeting. So, um, if you, you know, you're trying to accelerate regularly, or do you want to train the process of more acceleration load on your muscular system? It really depends. Yep. And I can add one, and uh, is are you looking at the impulse? Uh, so taking into account the peak intensity of uh, of the acceleration, and so you have a third layer. And uh, as Aaron said, depending on the on the context, you you need to use uh, one or the other. Mm -hmm. Okay, next question, just another few minutes. Um, this was directed at you, Matteo, but good to get the, the opinion of the other guys as well. In a one game week, how do you distribute volume of high-speed run and sprint distance across the different training days relative to match day? Good one. Uh, uh, we, we, to be honest, Again, uh, there is no magic answer. Uh, I, 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 to be honest, I, I won't give numbers or I won't give examples because so I, I went through, through many different coaching philosophies right now. And depending on the coaching philosophies, uh, the planning can be different. And to be honest, I don't know if there is one that's better than the other. Uh, it's just about how you are planning for it and uh, what is the end goal of, of that. Uh, but one thing I know is that you don't need to go flat through the week. <laughs> you need to have some variability in training uh, and you, you need to have intensity at one time. Uh, I, I believe a lot in going through intensity rather than volume, at, at least in my sport. Uh, but then, yeah, depend on the context, coaching philosophy. Uh, and uh, yeah, how do you plan the training? Mm -hmm. Anything to add in your context, Amber? 
No, I disagree with what um, Matthew said in terms of it. It's dependent on the the periodization and the model. Like I've worked across, you know, competitions in three different areas, and they've I've worked with numerous head coaches, and they've all had a slightly different variation. So in an A league, it was main training was done across, you know, your volume was done across two days, and then went to MLS, and it was a completely different model. Um, you're looking at like a or like a tactical periodization. So you're looking at different stimulus across different days. So I guess it just is that conversation with your your high performance manager or having that plan and then understanding. And then in the AFL, it's been completely different again. So you're looking at just different different sports, different models, different philosophies. Um, but I agree, you, you as long as you have that kind of variability in your load across the week and you're hitting those different targets. Cool. Last one from your fellow countryman, Matteo, from Cedric. What do you think about peak demands? I love Cedric's questions. Always, uh, always drops in the chat. Anything to any any opinion there? Matthew, sorry, mate. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. That was... No, 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 no problem. <laughs> you could have sent this one by WhatsApp and uh, yeah. <laughs> take it, take it offline. Take it offline. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, big hype. Of peak demands, yeah. uh, but to be honest, um, uh, I think it's a great addition to our tools. Uh, it's not maybe it's not the you know, one go tools, but I think it adds to uh, the tools we we have to understand uh, the intensity of the skills we uh, we are creating or, or putting on the on the field. Um, one thing I'm super interesting right now is that okay, we have the peak demands, but uh, what is the quantity? <laughs> coming back to the volume side of this kind of peak demands we, we are doing because if we are just following the, the model uh, you just you just need to go in the zone once you know and uh, if you are just looking at that okay did I reach these peak demands okay you went once in your kind of peak demand zone but what is the distribution of the demands it's way more interesting and trying to have some kind of matching in distribution of, uh, of peak demands it's way more interesting rather than just did I went there once to be honest because for example uh, uh, I can run as far uh, I can run as fast as Martin Bichette for example but I won't <laughs> run <laughs> I won't go up with the demands at all you know <laughs> so we need to be careful with that Aaron also um, say be very careful with planning training around peak demands of external load because it's the internal load or the physiological adaptations that provide, you know, that support that. So um, it's a really limited view that only using peak demands to plan your training. Like it's, it's a tool, as Matthew says, it's, it's a definitely an important tool, but you need to plan your training to hit the physiological targets that underpin the ability to complete those. So we've got to get back to basics um, and not let the external load measures um, take us away from the, the, you know, the training process. It's all about preparing the body to cope with those. And it's just not as simple as replicating something that happens once in a game. It's much more complex than that. Thanks for tuning in to episode 439 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Hope you enjoyed this episode with Amber, Aaron and Matteo. This was recorded back in 2021, but the information is still incredibly, incredibly valuable from these three guys. Big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, Team Builder, Smarterbase, Omega Wave and Satanta College for sponsoring this episode today. 
The podcast could not run in its current form without these guys, so I really do appreciate all their support. Big thanks to you for tuning in, and look forward to chatting to you next time. Bye.